Welcome back to Automated Societies, a podcast from the ARC Centre of Excellence for Automated Decision Making and Society. In today's episode, we're spotlighting a panel from the recent Web Search Revolution Symposium held at RMIT University and online on the 17th of August, 2023. In this panel, titled, What Did the Web Search Revolution Revolt Against? Professor Julian Thomas, Professor Mark Sanderson, and Professor Lisa Given from RMIT University recall the history of search and draw a link between the subscription-based search company Takeover in the 1960s and the current generative AI revolution that we are experiencing today. Welcome, I'm Professor Lisa Given. I am Director of the Social Change Enabling Impact Platform here at RMIT, and I'm also a Professor of Information Sciences sitting across the School of Global Urban and Social Studies and the School of Computing Technologies. And it's my pleasure to actually be moderating both this session, which is going to look backwards to history, and the session after tea, which is gonna fast forward into the future. So I get the fun job of of flipping my brain between multiple decades. Um, To my left, we have have uh, our other speakers today, um, and I'm just going to make sure that I get titles right. So first of all, we've got Professor Mark Sanderson, who is Chief Investigator at the RMIT University Node of the ARC Center of Excellence for Automated Decision Making and Society, and he is also Professor of Information Retrieval here at RMIT University, and Professor Julian Thomas, also here at RMIT, Director of the ARC Center of Excellence for ADMS, and a Distinguished Professor in the School of Media and Communications. So without further ado, Mark is going to show us... Um, some fun video. What, what Julian and I were doing, uh, were thinking about was that we, we just wanted, I know Sue gave you a little bit of prehistory to the web, but we thought we would give you this in a little bit more detail. And we thought what we would do, it was we would look at three times, three places and three times um, uh, uh, that, that we thought would sort of an interesting illustration. Uh, it also happens to follow roughly where I've lived, um, but although not necessarily in these times, uh, and the first thing I wanted to show you was this video that I found, um, thanks to some of my old colleagues at Sheffield uh, Information School, um, of a library in Sheffield in 1956. So fingers crossed if I press this button. Uh, oh, can you turn the volume up? Alone issues over three quarters of a million. The right book into the right hands at the right time. That, in short, is the task of the librarian. Here is the hub of the wheel. This is where the books must be chosen and bought for all ages, tastes, and needs. Sheffield has hundreds of thousands of people who all want to know. Every single person here has wanted information urgently at some time or another, and it's ten to one that the answer has come from the library. Every morning, for instance, the city librarian has a mass of inquiries by post. Some are easily answered, others may need hours of expert attention. Here's a bit of a teaser from abroad. A welfare officer wants to know the safe maximum working speed of cutlery glazing wheels of a certain type. All in the day's work for experts who have the right tools to hand. Every year, thousands of people visit the city on pleasure or on business. They often need information and they need it quickly. The Civic Information Service in the nearby Central Library is specially equipped and staffed to cater for all types of inquiries, not only from visitors, but also from the people of Sheffield themselves. 
Um, so Mark, I'm, I'm keen to know what, did, when you watch this, what does it tell you about the way that people were searching for information back then? I, I think the key thing from, from looking at this, uh, that I take away from this is, is the incredible diversity of information needs that the libraries tried to service. There we saw, you know, the information needs of the public. We saw industry writing to the chief librarian uh, in, in Sheffield Central Library asking for information, kind of question answering, right? And then people visiting Sheffield uh, and wanting to know information when they come to visit, just like Sue was, was wanting to know about Melbourne when she got here. Um, and so it's this incredible diversity uh, of, of information needs that were actually fully understood back then, but they were serviced by an incredibly manual, uh, quite slow, very, uh, and, and actually, if you think about it, very expensive service. You know, the chief librarian probably had 20 or 30 letters at tops. If he got any more, he couldn't have dealt with that many. You know, his efficient secretary couldn't have that gone and sort of uh, found a way of getting an answer for him. So, so you know, so it's, it's, it, it's, you know, it, it's a world where the needs are just like ours, but, but they're serviced in a very different way. I, I think it's an amazing uh, illustration of... An, an information society which which has almost vanished, but one of the really interesting things about it, like so many things, is we can we can understand that film and and those messages in in actually many different ways. It, it's telling us some really interesting things, I think, about what what citizenship was thought to involve actually in in Sheffield at that time. This this idea that the people of Sheffield need to know. The people visiting Sheffield need to know. This is, a, this is an attribute of citizenship which has not always existed. In fact, it's a fairly new idea at the time that we see it there. I think it's an idea which is really closely associated with certain sorts of expectations about what modern Britain was supposed to look like, how citizens in that society were supposed to be able to have access, uh, including their economic agency, but also all the information about how they worked. That is a really kind of key point about it. A few other things following from Mark's remarks. It's free to use. It's very expensive, but it's free to use. This is also a civic facility. So it's, it's, the, it's the city public library. And elsewhere in the film, there's actually an extended description of, of, we, we really recommend a full viewing, uh, an extended description of the governance structures of this system, so how, how it works. Not just where the books come from, but there's an account of the long-standing uh, city council, the municipal committee that governs the library. So there's something in there about how all this works. So I think in, it, it, it's very easy to read this film in a way as depicting a vanished world of, of manual, uh, labour-intensive information retrieval, there's something in there also which is kind of pointing forwards, I think, to some of the ideas that we might have now about a more civic organisation of, of search and, and discovery, a different kind of model from the one we might have at the moment. And, it, and it's such a positive vision, you know, that's what I find amazing about it, this idea of the library as at the hub, you know, the centre of everything, that idea of 10 to 1, you're going to the library, even if it means you're sending a letter and waiting weeks to get a response, right? It's that very positive image.
yeah, and we're going to have to shoot through a little bit quickly. The, the glory of watermarks, Shirag was talking about watermarks. You can see I've taken this from the Yorkshire Film Archive slash the Northeast Film Archive. So you can go to the W, uh, the, the YFA, N-E-F-A, and the book, uh, the film's called Books in Hand. You can't get it on YouTube. Uh, luckily, this friend of mine pointed me to this, this archive, Books in Hand, 20 minutes. It's a great 20 minutes uh, vision of the past. Can I just say one more thing about it? And the archive is actually also an example of this. So we're asking, with the three times and places we're looking at, what kind of world of search was web search reacting against? This world that's depicted here is also something that has been constructed at, at considerable cost, of course, in reaction to something else which was a far more socially stratified distribution of information and knowledge. And, and, and I think that, that remains the, the really critical point about it. Cool. OK, now we're going to jump forward three or so decades, right? 30 plus years, uh, London 1990. And um, Mark, I think you were working on a at FT Profile at the time, um, if you can tell us a little bit about those services. So in Sue's talk, she mentioned that there were some online services in the 80s. Uh, and one of the ones she didn't mention is FT Profile, probably because it's a UK-based one. Uh, but yeah, and the screen's flickering a little bit. But, but this, uh, this was a service that you could dial up, right? So you could dial up on a teletype computer and connect to this. And they had about 18 gigabytes of, of news data. So they had every article from every quality British newspaper for five or six years, and you could dial up and search on that. Now, in, in 1991, I had free access to this, um, and so I actually recorded um, a little bit of an interaction with this service, and I know not everyone can see at the back, but the t it's a teletype terminal. You would have to type in the command select FT to get the Financial Times. And then you would try a query. So maybe Disneyland was about to be built in Paris, right? So I typed in a query in 1990 to said Disney in, pa in France, and I got no hits. Why? Because the search engine assumed I was typing in a phrase query, and there is nothing in the Financial Times with that phrase, Disney in France. So what you had to do is you had to sort of tunnel in by individual words. So you type get Disney, and it says 151 items retrieved. Then you have to use a different command called uh, the word pick, which is done a subset of the, of the 151. You say pick France, and it says you get 19 hits. I go, OK, 19 I can deal with. So I type in the command headline all, and I get this list of things, right? So this is number one. And the number one item, what you get back is this. You get back just the text. So when I tell you it's 18 gigabytes, it's actually quite a lot of data because there's no images, there's no formatting. It's just text. And this is the article. So I was looking at this on the weekend when I was putting these slides together. I was thinking, what's this got to do with Disney in France? You know, why is this here? And, and luckily, um, I found a, a, an old archive of Financial Times articles and managed to dig out this bad scan of this article. And um, this article is actually about a, a museum in Germany designed by Frank Geary. In the first paragraph is the word France. In the last paragraph is the word Disney. Um, <laughs> And what happened was that these were date sorted. So this was the newest article that matched my query, and that's what I got. So one of the reasons I'm telling you all this, and actually one of the reasons why I put this picture of this lady in front of this, this screen was these systems were really hard to use, and Sue said this. 
This is actually a picture from my old uh, uh, university, Sheffield, where we trained librarians to use systems like this. And one of the reasons why we trained librarians to use systems like this, I know people don't like the advertising model, the subscription model of this service, it cost £1.60 a minute to access this system. That's in 1990. So a quick search on the internet, according to the top website I found, that's £4.65 a minute in today's money, which translates to about $9 Australia a minute. And so we, we would train at Sheffield, we would train librarians to use this because it was really hard and it was flipping expensive. And so we needed people to go and hit that thing, get the data and get the hell out of there because it was costing so much money. So that, that was sort of, that, that was sort of, that, that was the 1990s. You could do online search, but that's what it was. <laughs> exactly. So, it, it, from, from Sheffield in the 50s to London in the early 90s, we're in a different world. We've gone from that post-war, all those aspirations around what modernity could look like in, a, in, in what was hoped and, and, and imagined to be an increasingly inclusive kind of society. London in the 1990s, of course, it is a totally different world. And it's, it's hard not to think about this without thinking about the emergence and domination of the market economy in that place and at that time after over a decade of conservative Thatcherite government at that time. I'm not saying that Mark was a Thatcherite working for the Financial Times. But what we see here, of course, is a, is a system which is entirely market driven. So when we think about all of these debates that we've been having about web search from the 1990s onwards, the Nissenbaum arguments and all the others around the politics of search and what market-driven search might, in, might look like, that's, that's exactly what it looked like then and that's exactly what it was. So we've shifted from information for citizenship to information for economic agency. It's a totally different paradigm. It's amazing. You're bringing back all the memories because in Canada in 2001, my first you know, professorship, I was teaching advanced searching in dialogue system, exactly the same paper use. And the main rules were you were not allowed to do search for library or search for information because that system would chug for hours and push back, you know, the world of knowledge. So that was a that was a bad thing when you were a student in my class. It cost a lot of money. <laughs> Could I say one more thing about it though? I mean, I keep adding these postscripts, but we are talking about what these systems were, were revolting against. If they were revolutions, and I think we can think of FT profile as a, as, as a, as a manifestation of a revolution itself. But I think that what this was a revolution against was a kind of social networking of financial information. So the idea was, and it was in the spirit of that time, an idea about commoditizing a service in order to break a social network. It was anti-establishment in its, in, in, its, in its own way. It also created expert searchers because we couldn't afford to not be expert. Unlike web search, which brings us to you know, the lazy days of put in your own terms and have fun for free. Um, sure. So let me let me just sort of jump forward. We we sort of debated a little bit about where where to talk, but we thought we would talk about Melbourne um, in 1994. 
as being a sort of a point um, because so we, we we wanted to sort of ask you know what was the web search revolution a revolution against and we've shown you what libraries were like in 90 seconds we've shown you what commercial search systems were like very very expensive um, and, but there's another story that I would love to tell as well and Sue sort of mentioned this as well the other the other thing that sort of happened in in sort of the the 90s and I've expressed this Alistair forgive me uh, with your book managing gigabytes uh, uh, Ramon mentioned this in the panel, but but in 1994, the Managing Gigabytes book came out. It was published. It was written by Alistair uh, Muffet, uh, uh, Ian Witten, and and uh, Chris uh, Timothy Bell. Uh, to, they're both sort of researchers in New Zealand. Alistair uh, is now an Australian, uh, but he was based here at Melbourne. Still in New Zealand. <laughs> but still, and 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 so so three New Zealanders. The reason I'm mentioning this book is because. This is actually the book that uh, Alistair has been told. The Google guys basically had this book by the side of their son workstation when they were writing the Google system. So when you heard Alistair talk about making things go really fast, this was the book that told you about that. Why am I listing this book? Well, this book wasn't just a bunch of algorithms from, from, uh, you know, from Witten, Muffet, and Bell. It was a distillation of decades of research on information retrieval. There's a whole bunch of stuff in that book about ranking algorithms, about user interfaces. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on there. So we, and actually the, uh, the information retrieval community, we even have a posh name. We tried for years to persuade companies like FT Profile to change to something that was more user friendly, to something that could actually uh, make relevant material appear first, uh, to something that would run faster. Um, and there was a real rejection uh, of, of those advances. And then when the web came along, there was a real large-scale adoption of those ideas. Now, there was also a revolution for the academics because the search engines, it turned out, didn't want all of our ideas. It turned out some of our ideas weren't very good. It turned out that they had problems that we'd never thought about. But there was these decades of research. I mean, I, I think I found the first paper that sort of uh, suggests ranking Using a search, uh, using a computer, and it dates back to '53, um, so 70 years ago today. Um, and so the, the, there had been ideas for decades in doing this, but they had largely been ignored by the commercial world. And when the web came along, these web search engines started to look seriously at that research. So 1994 in in Melbourne and and in many other places, as Mark's been saying, it's a it's, it's, it's a critical inflection point in the histories we've been talking about. But what happens here with the appearance of the web is a moment for libraries and public institutions to sort of step back into the debates that we've been talking about. And particularly in relation to those connections between people's capacity to search and find information they need. And and the issues we've, we've been talking about already today around information access. So something interesting, I think, that happens in this city and at that time, not entirely different from what happens in many other places, but nevertheless a distinctive innovation, is that librarians and computer scientists in this university get together with our colleagues in the State Library of Victoria, which is just across La Trobe Street, and they create a new kind of institution which was called VicNet. And VicNet was designed to provide access to the internet, as well as training in, in search and, of course, many other things 
for all kinds of communities and organizations across the state and as it grew actually beyond the boundaries of the state. It developed websites for community organizations in many different languages. One of the differences perhaps between Melbourne in the mid-1990s and Sheffield in the mid-1950s is that in this, in Melbourne we're talking about a, and in Victoria we're talking about a more culturally diverse set of communities. So that mix of languages is a major issue and something that needs to, needs to be worked on. So this is where the libraries and the universities come back into it and you see a lot of aspirations and expectations about what a sort of civic internet might look like, again, including one with commercial components. So, of course, they're already starting to see advertisements being run on Lycos and other things. And that doesn't stop these services, including those commercial elements, but they're sitting alongside civic and publicly supported services. So I, th I think this is, a, 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 an, again, another, another really interesting moment. Um, what's also, I suppose, striking about it, we've been talking about the costs of these services. I think the pricing is really um, interesting and important. VicNet provides access to the internet to people, including in, in, in distant towns and communities, for a, for a dollar an hour in, in, in the mid-1990s. So an extraordinarily dramatic shift from the, the price of FT profile. So cool. 1994, I'm again like, you know, deja vu. I'm sitting in Canada starting my Master of Library and Information Science degree and would end up being a long career looking at user experience, information behavior around technology, right? But at that time in the university, um, you know, big university in Canada, not everybody had a computer at home, right? And even on campus, there were restrictions. So if you were in the humanities and social sciences, as I was, we did not get access to computer labs. Those went to predominantly the computing STEM end of the campus, and therefore drawing very big gender lines around who had access to these technologies. So for me, coming out of undergrad, it was only when I got into an information science program that I was actually able to even have access to the computing that I needed. And so that's kind of an interesting side jaunt when we think around access. What do we mean by access? Just because we've got the systems doesn't mean that everybody's got their hands on, on the machine. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering if anybody has any questions from the floor. That would be kind of fun. More trips down memory lane, maybe way at the back, maybe some women. I feel like I've heard a lot of male voices in the room today. No offense, but gender balance. So what the three of you haven't seen is that at the start of this panel, I tweeted a little joke. Uh, an information scientist, a sociologist, and a computer scientist walk onto a stage. I love it. What do these three disciplines have? I know we're looking at the past, but what do these three disciplines have to bring to the future, and how do we work together better than we have until now? Uh, well, look, I mean, uh, 30 years ago, the thought of um, someone like me and someone like Julian sitting on a stage would just seem completely bizarre. Um, because I don't think anyone in 1994, if we're going to stick with that, had any idea what web search was about to do. Uh, so uh, we were discussing this over lunch. You know, the, 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 the other thing that happened is these developments continued through the 90s 
with a lot of people not really noticing what was going on because they just hadn't, no one had, no one had really clocked just how profound this change was going to be. The end of the enlightenment period, Justin. And so, um, you know, so, so, so I think, I think certainly the fact that we're all sitting down today tells you something about, about the fact that we're, we're a lot more interested, that the communities are a lot more interested in talking with each other and, and, and learning from each other. So I would certainly say that because that, that, that's a start. I mean, you couldn't even get information retrieval and database people in the same room. They, they couldn't even talk the same language. Um, you know, they, they, it, was, it, it was a very, very different time. Um, so so that, that would be my answer. I, I think when we look at these images and think about these places, depending on where we're from and our own backgrounds, including, of course, our, our disciplinary orientations, we, we see different things. And I, I think that's the most, to, to me, that's, that's, that itself is, is a very interesting aspect of, of this kind of exercise and these kinds of conversations. But I think that when we're thinking about the sorts of challenges that we're starting to address in, in, in this day, in, in, in our conversations so far, when we're starting to think about the kinds of questions that, that the futures of search hold, including the, the, the questions raised by the capabilities of generative AI, we, we really, it, it is incumbent on us to try to bring together the different sorts of insights that we all have about you know some of the critical questions um, and and this is this is a great way to do it and i think the only thing i would add to that is that we also bring diversity of methodological expertise and you know i've really made it kind of my mission in life to make sure that qualitative research and social research is at the forefront of technology and technology studies so that we're not just looking at it from any one of these perspectives but we're looking at things holistically in the round and actually then building systems that are going to be for people ultimately for the good of people do we have time for one more yes Mark's quote of the statement by Brennan Page to Alistair is accurate. I was standing next to him at the time. That was exactly what was said. Um, that they had the book open to them while they were implementing whatever it was originally called. Uh, second, a very obvious point, but one that you haven't mentioned. In the late 80s at the University of Melbourne, we had access to a national federated database of collections held across Australian universities. At the time it was Caval, I think the coalition of something, something, something. And the total cost of searching up a research paper and having it copied at the remote library and delivered to the university was about $100. So one thing that we were rebelling against or revolutionizing um, was elitism. Because no ordinary citizen would have spent a third of their weekly salary on accessing a single research paper. So democratization is something I'd be interested to hear some comment on. I think it's been a continuing thread. Um, I think that story actually goes back to Sheffield in the 50s, as well as Melbourne um, more recently. But I think it's, you know, it is absolutely central. And, uh, you know, when we think about that you know, those extraordinary um, shifts in the cost of access to information networks, the fact that by the mid-90s people could access the internet for an affordable 
price, a dollar an hour, um, even in remote areas, um, you know, is, is, is really quite extraordinary. And that is absolutely what, what VicNet and the researchers, many of the researchers that, that Mark's been talking about, uh, and the developers of the web were, were thinking about. They were, they, they were reacting against the kind of commoditization, uh, not, not quite the Caval situation, but certainly the FT profile type situation. Very expensive, very expensive databases. Um, it, uh, uh, yes, you know, absolutely they were. And I, I suppose, um, now I'm straying into territory that is not my domain, right? So I'm not a historian, but I suppose, uh, and Julian is more of a historian, so you'll correct me, but I, I suppose one of the interesting things about revolutions is revolutions often rebel against something, but then often there are things that happen post-revolution that wasn't really planned. And, and, and maybe that's exactly what we're describing, right? So we're showing you exactly what was being rebelled against, but then one of the reasons we have this center, one of the reasons we're meeting today is because of the consequences of a revolution. Um, and, and, you know, perhaps it's, just, it's, perhaps it's just another revolution. I don't want to trivialize it, but... Uh. Sorry, yeah, it, 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 it could be another revolution. I mean, I, I think it's really interesting when we look at that literature, uh, the, you know, the, the social science um, scholarship, the humanities scholarship around search in the, you know, from the 1990s, you sort of see that the kinds of issues we've been talking about today are already being, being very cogently raised. So um, Helen Nissenbaum, for example, is already talking, as I, as I said, about you know, what she described as the politics of search. And she said, look, what happens when you have market forces shaping outcomes of you, you know, what people see on, on search engines? And one thing she says is that it would be fantastic if the technical community could remain true to what she described as the ethos of the web, which was about inclusivity and about fairness and those kinds of things. So it's quite strange to read that now because that's not what we think about when we think about the web right now. But as, as I think you know, you're saying, our remit as a centre and, and you know, it, it, it's really fantastic to see this idea being built into so much ambitious research around this space. But, you know, what would a responsible search engine look like? It, it's still an open question. And I think the critical thing for me is not just search, but also retrieval and use. And we're coming full circle now in terms of the for-profit publishing models, right? So maybe the next revolution is truly underway, partly at the moment. I'm very concerned that costs are being offloaded now onto authors, for example. You know, things, so things are not free at the end of the day, um, but we want them to be accessible and available for free. And how are we going to actually create a model that supports that? Fun time. So on this note, I was going to say now we're going to have a tea break, which is great. Then we're going to fast forward into that future. And so maybe you'll, you'll have other questions that you want to spark around what the next 30 or so years are going to look like. Thanks for listening. You can find all session recordings from the Web Search Revolution Symposium on our YouTube channel by visiting admscenter.org slash YouTube. <laughs>